Hello everyone, I'm Kieran Waite, Principal Cybersecurity Consultant here at Hamilton Barnes. Welcome to our new spin-off series of the Route to Networking podcast, the Security Vendor Edition, where we will be speaking to security professionals to shed light on cyber and network security space. Today, I'd like to introduce a special guest, Toby Lewis, who is the Global Head of Threat Analysis at Darktrace. Toby has started his career with the British Intelligence Services and is also a founding member of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre. So very, very interesting guest we have on today. Look forward to hearing more about Toby's journey in the cybersecurity space. Welcome, Toby. Great. Thank you very much for having me. So, yeah, so uh, the way that we sort of typically do our podcast is we'll start kind of getting to know you and um, a bit about your past. Then we'll talk about what's going on with you at the moment, maybe what's going on uh, with Darktrace. And then we'll kind of look at uh, your predictions for the future of cybersecurity. Um, so, yeah, let's let's begin. So how did you get into your career as the global head of threat ana- analysis at Darktrace? So my my career, well, I mean, if I can go all the way back in time, back to sort of 2006, which is when I left university. And I did, I did engineering at, at university. And my sense was after about four years, I'll be honest, I was a bit bored of engineering. And I wasn't really kind of quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, I'd been in sort of the, the, the territorial army, the reserves um, at the time. And so there was a almost kind of a natural assumption, I'd just go join the army. And so started off a little bit down, down that route. Um, and then a friend of mine, um, both in the same course, both sort of following the same path down towards the military, went, well, as you do when you're in a student bar, went, oh, wouldn't it be really funny if we applied to join the intelligence services? Um, and, and so we did. And and a short while later, you know, I started my career at GCHQ and uh, he was off to go and support MI5. So, um, and I think really from there, I mean, that sort of started my career in in what then became known as cybersecurity. I think when I when I first joined, um, that really wasn't a phrase, I suppose, that 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 was used. And yeah, kind of really went went from there really. And and it's it was a it was a career of, I suppose, coincidences, sort of happy sort of timings, um, and just kind of really taking the opportunities um when they came up, I think. Oh, oh, very interesting. So one thing that really stuck out to me there is actually the working for the GCHQ, MI5, those British intelligence services. So I have to ask, is it like in the movies? Is it like James Bond? <laughs> um, well, I, I suppose there's there's a few different kind of ways I could answer that one. And of course, I'll say, yes, of course it is, because I'm sure they want, <laughs> want recruits uh, just as much as anyone else does. Um, but but to be honest, um, I mean, I mean, I was there for 15 years in the end. Um, and it is, in some respects, just part of the civil service. So a lot of what um, you know you, you would associate with the civil service, um, a little bit of bureaucracy, a little bit of sort of hierarchy, sort of. Uh, don't get me wrong; they they look after their people really, really well in terms of the training and development. Um, it just so happened that the part of the civil service that I was in was the intelligence services, and so therefore the mission, the role, um, is probably a little bit different uh, than than most other civil service branches. I think that's probably fair. Yeah, interesting. When I was at uni, uh, I went to, to Brunel University and I did a, a history degree, but there was in the, the third year, we did a module on uh, sort of intelligence and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and for one of our um, course, well, one of the sort of bits of coursework we had to do is we had to predict um, five different risks to the UK. Um, and, and it was really, really interesting, actually, um, kind of predicting who, what the threat actors are, um, it doesn't have to be sort of like cyber related or anything like that. It could be even like to do with the the climate. 
Um, but yeah, I, th- I found it really interesting. And, and two of my um, two of my friends who were on the same course as me, they went ahead and did it as a master's. And, and one of them now works for MI5. And it just sounds so interesting. Obviously, he can't tell me that, that much about it, though. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, really cool um, area to work in. But um, no, cool. So, and how would you say a career in the, the sort of civil service space um, kind of helped you move into the cyber world? Um, I suppose there's 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 two parts to it, um, and, and I, I sort of get asked quite sort of regularly, like how how did I progress my career in cybersecurity? What are the things that that kind of helped me get along my way? And I think one of those aspects is really recognizing that cybersecurity as a topic is massive. You can you can spend your entire career in just one little niche rabbit hole pocket of cybersecurity and not touch 90 percent of the other stuff. And, you know, you can be a world leading technical specialist in that thing. And in reality, you know, there's, there's going to be parts of cybersecurity that, that you have very limited visibility over. Um, you know, and I, I sort of think about things like you know, like cryptography and, um, I don't know, risk and policy and these sort of things where, yeah, I've got a good understanding of how they work. But like the level of depth required to, to be an expert is, is quite hard. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason for bringing that up is is that this is arguably one of the real benefits of working for the civil service, but also just any kind of really large organization, mm-hmm. is that you've got that scope to move around. You've got that scope to move around um, largely within the same domain um, and get experience in different aspects of, of the discipline you want to sort of get involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do all that without the risks, if you like, of having to move to a completely different organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I spent 15 years at GCHQ, as I said, and then I sort of jumped out and, and went to Darktrace. And and it was a, I mean, a threat is the wrong word, but I sort of thought about certainly leaving the civil service probably about two, three times. Mm-hmm. But it's not until you actually come to make that jump do you go, oh, is this, is this the right call? Is this the right decision? Because changing employers is, you know, can be quite a big step. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there's, there's certainly a benefit from a being in an organization as, as big as the civil service is, where, as I said, you can move around, you get to experience lots of different roles mm-hmm. without having the, the sort of the slight fear, I suppose, of of jumping to a completely different organization and the unknown that kind of comes with that. Yeah, no, that's a very good point, actually. I didn't even consider that. Um, yeah, like you said, the UK civil service is huge and I, I can only imagine the sort of cyber operations are, are massive as well. What would you say was the the biggest difference then between uh, kind of working in the civil service and now working for one of the world's biggest cybersecurity vendors? And I think it's, it's very much a case of uh, sort of motivations and, and the reasons why behind the organisations. Um, I mean, when I, I joined the civil service, I joined the intelligence services, I mean, they have obviously have a very, very unique mission. It's a mission that doesn't really exist anywhere else. And at its fundamental core is is altruism, is is doing absolutely the right thing. You know, if, if there is a fear that it's going to uh, be expensive or it's going to cause some other sort of negative impact, you spend a long time kind of weighing those up. Mm. But actually overriding is this sense of, is it the right thing to be doing? Mm. And I think my experience in the vendor space is really recognising that whilst altruism arguably still exists and it's still fundamentally kind of why we are in our roles, we want to keep organisations secure, we want to prevent them from getting breaches. And I'm sure there's there's some marketing taglines there as well. Mm. Um, fundamentally, these are vendors that exist 
for commercial reasons. And so there is this underlying tone of of actually what can we do to to, to sell our product? Um, and I think from from my perspective, and I've and I've always uh, towed a very hard line on this, mm-hmm. is that I'll do that, but I won't undermine my beliefs. And that is around that sense of altruism. And so I think that when it comes, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to to customers and, and potential customers mm-hmm. at the moment. And I think that really lends itself to maybe just being more credible as an individual yeah. than actually having a really honest conversation around what is the right approach for cybersecurity for that organization. And, you know, and I do genuinely believe that in the majority of cases, it is going down the route of something like a dark trace or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but but having that honest and open conversation that look, I'm not going to do a hard sell and sell to you whatever matters. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the, the the biggest kind of notable difference, certainly. Um, I think I think the other aspect, um, and this is something that you know, the civil service is is known for its level of of administration and bureaucracy. That's that's certainly true. Um, you know, there's always a form to fill in or a bit of paperwork that you need to complete. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that that actually people forget about is that gives it you know an incredible level of structure. Um, and you know, if there's something new turns up or you're new in a role or you're taking on a new challenge, mm-hmm. um, actually having a bit of structure that's wrapped around it, a bit of process that's wrapped around it can actually really help, you know, particularly if you're a bit anxious, a bit nervous, not quite sure kind of how you're going to handle it. I think the trade-off is that if you go into sort of the commercial world, mm-hmm. a lot of those, if you like, non-delivery functions of a business, HR is, is the good one to go to, yeah. are generally a lot more pared back, um, a lot more sort of... Um, I think I think the official phrase is they're running as lean teams, which basically means they're under-resourced and under-sort of staffed. But um, but I think generally speaking, this this model then that actually those processes don't exist, that those um, those structures maybe aren't as robust as they used to be. I think that gives an organisation incredible flexibility to be to be agile, to uh, to be kind of really nippy in terms of how it changes and evolves, and in an organisation where I suppose innovation is. Is the core of what it does that that agility is is you know key mm-hmm. um but as a, as a as a manager of people or a manager of managers if, if you want to sort of go down that far not having some of those structures in place some of that hr bureaucracy that maybe i was used to yeah. um has has meant that at times i've had to sort of maybe do a little bit more thinking about kind of the right approach than than yeah. maybe i would have had to have done previously Oh, interesting. That's uh, yeah, quite an interesting challenge. I wasn't expecting that answer, to be honest. Um, of course. And then so focusing in a bit on your your military background. So I'm actually working quite a lot, uh, well, recently at least, uh, working with a lot of candidates from a, a military background. And I'm finding that the, the military is brilliant at getting people certified with uh, sort of cutting edge cybersecurity technologies. Um, and quite a lot of people are coming out, for example, with like Splunk architect certifications or threat intelligence certifications and like really, really good at what they do. Um, would you say then that coming from a military background uh, lends itself quite nicely to to kind of move into cybersecurity as a career? Um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate, you know, both with my my brief foray into the military at a personal level, but also just working with the military during my time in, in GCHQ and the NCSC. Um, 
And I've always, you know, you're absolutely right. The level of training and development that the military, and I mean, that's the same true goes for the civil service, um, puts into their staff is is incredible. Right? There's there's very very few organisations out there that will that will put the same level of training uh, into it. And you know, there's there's an old adage. I think I think it was called the BBC cameraman challenge, where um, ITV used to poach staff from BBC because they knew BBC gave brilliant training, and then ITV wouldn't have to have a training budget. I don't know how much truth there is to that analogy, but the, the same is true with, with the military and the civil service is that, mm. uh, you know, my experience is you get individuals who have done a lot of really quite, um, you know, hands on high grade training uh, and development. And, you know, they come out of it with with certifications and qualifications and um, yeah. kind of name it. Um, I suppose there's there's two points to that. One, which is, I suppose we can see as as a positive aspect of all of that, you know, uh, and I think, you know, there, there's a certain culture in the military, which, um, again, altruism kind of creeps through a little bit there, which is which I think is always good to have in an organisation. Um, but I think there's also an element of, again, that structure and process. And I think for some, some people that can be really good and so you get a really good kind of work ethic that kind of comes out of that. Um, there is sometimes then the challenge of then coming from a very structured organisation mm-hmm. into the private sector, which tends to be less structured. Um, yeah, and yeah. that can sometimes be a real cultural shift for some people as they sort of make that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, you know, I would, if I looked across my my analyst team in Dark Trace at the moment, I would say 10% of the team, there are thereabouts, rough numbers, um, are ex-military. You go to my senior leadership team and that probably creeps up towards about 20, 25%. Um, and, you know, so we're no, we're certainly not shy in recruiting um, uh, from, from the military or, or from public sector service and you know they really kind of work well in that setting the one thing that i i will sort of say is a a sort of a a further counterpoint to just the existence certifications and qualifications per se Mm -hmm. is that having a piece of paper that says you know something is very different than being able to actually do it um and you know and i've I've said this kind of before when it comes to degrees and, and kind of other certifications is that you know i've spent a long time recruiting for my various teams over the last 15 plus years Mm. and fundamentally I want to know how somebody understands the problem not that they can kind of kind of regurgitate some some facts from a slide or Mm -hmm. um, you know they know the theory behind it but do they understand it and do they have the practical experience of of doing it and Mm. so that's you know whether it's military or or or, or not qualifications and certifications are you know, a real good kind of way of, I suppose, demonstrating that first pass of, yeah, I've got some experience. I know some, I've got some really kind of good knowledge, um, mm-hmm. but actually it's that ability to take it that next stage to demonstrate that depth, that demonstrate that understanding, the practical skills that yeah. go with it. Um, and I think that's, uh, that becomes really important to me. And, and you know, I've, you know, I've uh, recruited in the past where I have had two candidates um one with as many certifications as you can count letters i mean like coming out of arms and then i had another candidate who who hadn't been to university who hadn't you know for financial reasons couldn't pursue certifications but they were incredibly passionate about the topic and they would spend time at home in the evenings uh, doing online sort of hackathons and capture the flags um, whereas the, the individual with certifications, like nine to five, they did their certifications, they did their training, they had a really good degree, um, but there wasn't really interest in it, there wasn't any passion in it, so it was just something they just did. Um, 
and I ended up hiring the person with no certifications and no qualifications because it's the mindset that for me is much more valuable. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. That's um, a challenge that I've had recently with some candidates that I'm working with. So like the, the Azure security stack is something that's it's really in demand at the moment. So I'm working with a, a number of people who might be getting like their SC100 or their AZ500 and then they, they get it. They, they pass the exam, they get a certification and then they sort of value themselves um, based on that that certification um, and then when they go forward to interviews and they don't do so well or, or maybe the the company might kind of say well actually I think I would value the person at this amount uh, or this amount rather um, it's quite challenging to go see this is the issue you've got on at the moment is yeah you've definitely got the certification but do you have that full experience that they're looking for so yeah I think I'll definitely get those candidates to listen to to this podcast then. Um, is there something there around you know and, and you know, salary or price point is always a, a contentious conversation, but I'd always be the one that says, look, I'm going to price based on the candidates, not based on the certificates they hold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's that's the way it, it will always be. Um, so keeping on the topic then of uh, of education, so your sort of degree wasn't sort of sort of something that would directly put you into a cyber career. It wasn't so linear. Um, so how would you say that your education supported you in, in getting into your sort of career today? Um, there's a whole way, a whole number of different things, I suppose, that kind of creeps into that. And and you're right. I mean, I did um, engineering. I did electronic engineering um, as a degree. And, and and that was was sort of one of these things where I didn't really think about it. I just kind of fell into it. I, you know, I played around with the idea of doing medicine and my levels weren't as brilliant as I maybe had hoped they were. And and so I thought, well, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll do engineering. I'm, I'm quite a practical person. I think I could, that could make sense. And and actually, you know, I mentioned at the start of this that one of the challenges was I came out of an engineering degree, not really wanting to do engineering. And that's not a problem with the subject. It was more of just how it fitted with me personally. And, and I went into it wanting to be really practical and hands on. And a lot of undergraduates, and I ended up doing a the master's degree, undergraduate master's mm. in engineering, are incredibly theory based, like mm. equations and um, diagrams and graphs and formulas. And don't get me wrong, you get a real depth of understanding, mm. um, but you never actually get to do it. And I think that was, I came out of going, well, I don't want to do engineering if it's just lots of maths and equations and they're actually building stuff with my hands. Mm. And anyway, I mean, I. As I sort of mentioned, I kind of went off to GCHQ and the first role I had at GCHQ was was basically doing engineering, actually building something. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, this is actually not too bad, actually. And yeah, you know, I, I could have very easily seen myself just doing more engineering, more building roles fundamentally and actually being quite physical, quite hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then something kind of really changed for me. Um, and that was and I, I go back to the date or the day or the year that I joined GCHQ, which was 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the year that Facebook first opened its doors to accounts in the UK. And, you know, that I'm sure for many people um, feels like surely that could have never have happened. Surely there's always been a Facebook. But no, I remember a time when pre-Facebook and yeah, it, so it came out in 2006. Um, and I had an account just as I was leaving university. And so there was me joining the intelligence services with a Facebook account. And I, I turned to the security and the vettings team, um, said, hey, guys, I'm I'm a spy now. Um, am I allowed to have a Facebook account? And the sort of the response was um, somewhat paraphrasing was, what's Facebook? And, and I think that just really demonstrates just how new as a technology it was. 
Mm-hmm. And so that probably was more of a springboard into my cybersecurity career than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was at that point, where I went, well, why don't you know what, what Facebook was? And I, I then started down this whole path of, yes, doing my, my day-to-day engineering role, mm-hmm. but then going around and saying, I hear you don't know what Facebook is. Let me tell you about it. And this wasn't trying to extol the virtues of, of social media. I certainly don't consider myself a, a social media expert in, in terms of, you know, certainly from a marketing perspective. But obviously in the realms of, of GCHQ, the topic then became around the security of staff, the security of the work we're doing. And that extended, then I started then speaking to other organisations, some of the other intelligence services, parts of the military, um, and even then ended up working with the royal family in terms of how they use social media. And again, from a security perspective, you know, from a personnel security, operational security side of things. And at the time, you know, I was still really early in my career. I was 21, 22, 23, something like that. Um, and basically being thrust into different parts of government, really high echelons of government as the expert in social media security. Um, and it was all because on day one, I went, am I allowed a Facebook account? And and that's really kind of where it kind of blossoms. And yeah, I spent maybe three or four years kind of really riding on the coattails of, of that rather kind of innocuous question. Um, and it kind of really pushed me into what then became the cybersecurity arena. I mean, then it was then information security and information assurance. Yeah. But yeah, it was just starting to kind of get me involved in that. I, I ended up speaking at conferences and you know, many internal government conferences around this sort of topic. Um, and then, yeah, at that point, it kind of each step kind of followed on from that. It was a kind of a very natural progression by that point. But as yeah. I said, had it not been for Facebook, you and I probably wouldn't be talking right now. Yeah, well, that is fascinating. That is really out outside the box thinking and only at 21 years old as well. I'm, I'm super impressed with that. Uh, wow. And I, said it, I think it just boiled down to me just asking an awkward question. Yeah. Um, and didn't get the response that I was expecting. So, well, what can I do to help you out and, and kind of try and fix some of that, that yeah. ignorance, I suppose, but that lack of knowledge. Interesting. So what, when they eventually did get around to knowing what Facebook was, then what was the answer? To, were you allowed a Facebook or? <laughs> um, so for what it's worth, I do have a Facebook account and had one at the time. And it was it was one of those things where, and, and this is what I've always quite liked around the approach that the UK government has taken to security, cybersecurity, is that it's one of pragmatism. Mm. You you can't really rule by absolutes in the security mm-hmm. world, and certainly when it comes to people. And and people, you know, are a really important factor to consider as, as part of any sort of security program, because there's an element of people that is unpredictable, that is it's hard to control. Um, and it doesn't matter how many training sessions you give them or how many kind of financial incentives or or punitive kind of punishments if you like um there is still the inherent natural human behavior to click things do things not think 100 percent around security and and again i remember early in my career I'd, I'd get absolutely astounded of well why did you click that linkedin email how can you be so stupid and then realizing that actually there's me sitting in my ivory tower as a quote-unquote cybersecurity expert and they're just doing their job and and you know I, I shouldn't try and sort of compare myself to them or, or them to me in terms of that that, yeah. that knowledge in, in some respects so I mean to kind of answer your question it became a, a point of pragmatism it became a point of well look uh, the intelligence service would never want to outright ban anyone from using Facebook because as soon as they started doing that you then have people that would create Facebook accounts in secret. And uh, once you start doing something in secret, so, you know, as anyone that's worked in cybersecurity knows, 
that it doesn't become managed, that it's not operating with the right best practice or advice and guidance. And so actually being a little bit more forward leaning and going, look, you can have one, but here's the risks you're taking. Here's some like how to guide in terms of how to set up the privacy settings. Um, If you want some advice, come speak to this person. And I ended up being that for a while. Um, and, and, And a much more pragmatic kind of look, do it, but be informed with the risks you're taking. And if you want some steps to take, then then we'll provide those as well. I think an outright ban would have would have been very kind of short-sighted, I think. Yeah, I think um, anyone who's now looking to kind of take up a career with the civil service or with the um, British intelligence, uh, I think they'll be pleased to hear that answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and then circling back to uh, education. And so nowadays you're seeing a lot of uh, like cybersecurity graduates and, and network security graduates obviously kind of taking that degree for the purpose of having that sort of linear uh, movement into a, a cyber career. What's your thoughts on um, kind of going about it that way and, and getting a, a cybersecurity degree? Um, I don't know, I've got some sort of mixed views on them. And I think some of the early cybersecurity degrees that came out were effectively computer science degrees with an extra module on security. And then that meant you could rebadge it as a cybersecurity degree. And that, I'd argue, wasn't entirely uh, a valid approach to take. Yes. Um, things have changed a lot since then. And there are cybersecurity degrees out there that yeah, have a lot more of a practical component, are much more dedicated across the full breadth of cybersecurity. Um, you know, if I, go, if I go back to kind of um, the NCSC, for example, they spend a lot of time working with universities, education establishments to kind of help build up the quality of, of teaching to the point of, certifying accrediting certain courses for example as as being of the right standard i think there's there's a, there's a few parts um one is is going back to a point i made earlier which is cybersecurity is a massive massive domain mm-hmm. right how can a three four year degree cover that full topic in and mm-hmm. is in enough depth whilst keeping the breath is, is really really hard and so what you tend to find is that a lot of cybersecurity degrees tend to sort of uh, lean in one direction and the classic one is red teaming pen testing because that's the quote-unquote fun side of it although i've never done it so i don't know um so um so yes you do find yeah that there is a bit more of a natural leaning there um i think the other aspect is if you've got the breadth and, and depth challenge so to get a little bit of specialization um the other aspect is is again something else that i mentioned earlier on which was that that trade-off between pure theory and the kind of the underlying principles of how it all works and actually the practical skills in doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are some degrees that will do that, some that won't. Um, It does become a little bit what I would call buttonology. They'll teach you how to drive a specific tool. Um, Again, to take the the pen test example, maybe they'll they'll teach you how to drive Cobalt strike or you know some of the sort of pen testing framework and then you go there with you know i, I now know how to use cobalt strike therefore i'm a pen tester yeah is, is that true um no you've told them how to use a tool rather than you teaching them the mindset and, and the skills and everything else that, that might be needed so there's there's always a little bit of a, a kind of a trade-off of you know that's that skills versus knowledge versus understanding and, and, and those sorts of side of things um yeah as i said mixed mixed feelings on them uh, certainly i would never turn someone away because they had one it's, it's not that bad certainly um but I, again i come back to that point that i mentioned earlier on which is that i want to see kind of how rounded they are as an individual um yes. is this a degree that they genuinely have an interest in a genuine passion for um 
or just something that was that felt like a tick boxing box ticking exercise sorry um yeah. as they kind of went through it um and don't get me wrong i've certainly seen some candidates come to me who have got great degrees you know first class you know from brilliant universities mm-hmm. um but for them they were just kind of just going through the motions because it was an up-and-coming topic and but they have no real interest in it to pursue as a career so yeah yeah right there you go i think you've given our uh, cybersecurity graduate listeners a lot to think about there um oh perfect so and then so how would you say that the sort of cybersecurity space has evolved since when you started um i think there's there's, there's two aspects of that um i think a large proportion of some of the attacks that I saw in my early part of my career. So let me let me wind back a little bit. So I would probably say my career has, has been broadly split into two when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, the first half of my career, certainly after the, the Facebook um, side of things, but um, from about Facebook time till about WannaCrime in 2017, mm-hmm. um, what I focused on was nation state, state on state espionage activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then post 2017, post one of crime, very, very ransomware focused. And if I go back to that, you know, if like my nation state APT is another phrase you might hear, sort of era, um, there was a massive gulf, if you like, between the capabilities and the skill sets of your big nation state hackers mm-hmm. and the, the sort of cybercrime activity that was, you know, <sighs> basically background crud of the internet i mean there's no other sort of better way of putting it it was low grade poorly thought out wasn't particularly sophisticated targeted home users which mm-hmm. you know as we see now from cybercrime isn't where the money is it's big big companies um and we're just near like cybercrime at the time was just a bit near i mean there's no real word for it really yeah um and the nation state stuff was yeah, real high-end sophisticated bespoke zero days bespoke malware uh, really sophisticated kind of trade craft mm. um and i think you know yes that would have been what 2010 2011 2012 territory um and you start to start to creep forward over the last decade or so and the trade craft of your cybercrime actors has almost essentially caught up mm. um and i would say around about the 2017 2018 mark um other than motivation it was really hard to kind of pick two threat groups apart unless you knew some detail about them or you, know, you knew why they were doing it the tradecraft and tools they were using at times blurred in, into the same one now mm-hmm. is that an example of of nation state actors kind of trying to look like cybercrime so they don't get caught or at least they don't get attributed mm-hmm. is this about cybercrime actors just doing better i think there's there's definitely something in there around the bar for entry being lowered and i mentioned i think cobalt strike earlier on so you had these publicly accessible frameworks for conducting ha- hacking activity meant that you know with a little bit of kind of training and practice you could be at the same level of a nation state effectively um that's not an advert for cobalt strike by the way um and and so that lowered bar for entry meant that you suddenly had this explosion of cybercrime activity that was actually pretty good in terms of its capability to penetrate networks and to kind of achieve their goals mm-hmm. um and then over the last sort of three, four, five years or so, there's then almost been this this third shift, I'd argue, and it's been really prevalent this year, mm-hmm. which has been this idea that actually we're almost seeing less hacking, 
in the classic sense of the term. Um, less kind of really in the weeds code, uh, less custom bespoke malware. And effectively what we're seeing now, and we saw this a lot with the Lapsus cybercrime group over the last year, mm. is they're just simply logging on. They're stealing a username and password and they're just logging on. And that, that in some respects is when you look at a big major hack, mm. I'll put money on the fact that the attacker just logged on. Um, and whether that's because the password was particularly weak or it had been leaked online um, or they tricked the user into giving up their password through a classic phishing email, for example. Yeah, um, yeah nine times out of ten. I'm sure there's some more accurate stats than that. Um, but yeah, the attacker is, is just literally logging on. And then once they're on the first box, they go, well, I want to log on to that box. So they just log on and they move around the network just logging on. Yeah. Um, and it's and again, you've almost got this this additional layer of lowering the threshold required to sort of start to do some of this stuff. Mm. Um, and actually, you can cause quite a lot of damage in an organization with not a great deal of sophistication. Um, and, and in some respects, that's why certainly with since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, mm. uh, you've got all these hacktivists, as I would call non-state actors, you know, whether that's Killnet operating from Russia or the IT army of Ukraine, um, who are effectively able to kind of operate quite broadly without deep, deep layers of sophistication because they can just simply log on. Um, and that's really all that's required these days to kind of penetrate most networks. Yeah, it's fascinating. When people think about cybersecurity, you think about all these really technical things and um, them having to kind of jump through layers of encryption or something like that. But it, it's just as simple as just getting the login details. That's really quite funny, actually. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, you know, there's, there are absolutely kind of cases that we see and, and kind of saw back when I was in government of, you know, something that was really quite sophisticated that you sort of sat back and went, wow, that was that was pretty cool, actually. I, had, I don't know how they thought that through. You know, like how did they get the inspiration to kind of do that? Um, but yeah, increasingly and certainly, you know, the big high profile stuff um, is generally from just somebody just logging on. That's so funny. So interesting in then. So with um, the way that these sort of threat actors have, have changed the way they go about doing these things, how would you say that um, sort of threat intelligence or, or incident management has changed um, to be able to kind of respond to these things? Um, I mean, I mean you, you mentioned that sort of two disciplines that at times are very close to one another and at times very, very far apart. And and I think there's a, from an incident management side of things, and that's that's really what I then focused on during my time in, in the NCSC, um, is really about preparing for the unexpected in some respects, being able to build process and structure around how do you respond to an incident? Um, and I think if you're doing it properly, this is not then just a, a technical challenge or a security challenge. It's a whole of organisational challenge. Um, and that's been really amplified by the real sort of uh, peak in ransomware attacks, because, you know, with with ransomware, you've got, you know, cybersecurity used to purely be a technical problem. Um, it's a security problem. Oh, there's a, it's a virus. We just need to run some antivirus software and it'll make the computer good again or, or, or something like that. Um, but with ransomware, you're you're having an impact on business operations. And so suddenly the finance team care, the HR team care, the, you know, the, the delivery managers care. You know, everyone cares because they can't run the business. Yeah. And so kind of to do incident management properly, you've effectively had to evolve from being a pure technically focused team with lots of kind of forensic analysts and all these sorts of things 
to then bring in more soft skills, to bring in those sort of more project management type type tradecraft and communication skills to be able to uh, coordinate and manage all these different interested parties and stakeholders. So, so on one hand, yeah, I think you've got this model where incident management has, has almost had to become a little bit less technical, mm-hmm. um, but actually bringing in skills that are still really, really valuable to, to that particular kind of tradecraft. And, uh, and again, one of the things that I really focused on during my time at NCSC was, was how we build those skills out. So we have people that are really well-rounded across a whole range of cybersecurity topics that are both technical and also have those, those, those people skills. Fundamentally. Conversely, with the threat intelligence side of things, um, again, you've got this this slightly different process that's that's crept in and it's made it a bit more blurry. Mm. Maybe that's not the right phrase for it. But I think kind of in the early days of cybersecurity, when you did have these really custom bespoke bits of malware, mm. you could be relatively confident if you saw this thing that it was bad. That um, you know, if you've seen it once, you'll probably see it again. Um, there were certain parts of the internet that were just known bad, that a threat actor may have used time and time again for every one of their operations. There was evidence that, you know, malware was coming from it. There was evidence of hacking operations coming from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could just block an IP address or block a range or uh, you name it. Yeah. And I think because the tradecraft that we see from threat groups has evolved to the point where they can just log on, that they're looking like legitimate users and so it comes to a point of well how do you determine when somebody is a legitimate user versus when somebody isn't a legitimate mm-hmm. user um you can no longer just say well what ip address they log in from you know is that an ip address in the uk or heaven forbid it's from russia and and you know that's where all the boogeymen live mm-hmm. um and and i don't think that's necessarily true and and i think there's an element of well you know i think we've become a very international world over the last 10 years people travel more than they've ever traveled before ignoring covid for a short period of time um people travel um people you know move around the the country with work we've got people who are remoting in or or working from home more so than we've ever had before so all of a sudden this idea that now anybody can log in from anywhere in the world and they could be legitimate and it's really hard to kind of just have this this stamp collecting list of IP addresses that you know are definitely bad or know are definitely good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm somewhat of a uh, sort of biased here, but I mean, this is where we start talking about things like machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. And you know, clearly I'm going to say that I'm from Dark Trace. Um, but, it, you know, it genuinely has kind of a real kind of game changing moment here because we're now starting to... <sighs> I suppose have to be able to handle just a bit more uncertainty in in the threat landscape to the point where you can't then just predict something is good or bad because it has a big red flag on it and you need to have a, a bit more intimate understanding of of what it's doing and how it's doing it yeah okay so would you say that then the the zero trust concept is probably like the most effective way of kind of protecting a, a company from these sort of in, uh, issues or incidents? Um, and I think with, you know, like like a lot of sort of security approaches, um, A, there's there's no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. I think there's also something in there is that there's no, there's no silver bullet. I could probably reel out a few other idioms if we, if we kept on going long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, zero trust, and I think because of that, that point that I mentioned earlier on around that, that, that focus, that, that drift towards the idea that it's about identity 
fundamentally. Yeah. It's about identity theft, sort of a, you know, certainly in the computer sense, it's around credential abuse. Um, then actually the zero trust model um, is really engineered towards that sort of approach and that idea that actually let's not just inherently trust somebody because they know the password. Um, and that's, you know, for a lot of the attacks we see becomes really powerful, or at least a really powerful source of defense. Um, but I am always have been part of that comes from my time in, in GCHQ and the NCSC, have always been a big believer of, of defense in depth. And this idea that actually you shouldn't just have one thing that that protects you and then you can sort of sit back in your in your deck chair and go i'm done security is ticked um uh, and that it's this a it's constantly evolving picture sure um but it's also this idea that actually a, a network is more than just identity and that okay if you put in some really good defenses around identity and zero trust is certainly one of those and if the attacker is motivated enough they'll find a way around it they'll mm -hmm. find a way around either your zero trust model or they'll they'll revert back to those traditional sort of vulnerability exploitation hacking skills that yeah. that and i'm not saying that zero trust can't be sort of can't sort of defend against that but maybe it's not that's what it was engineered to do and so having other security mechanisms in place gives you that that much more rounded holistic defense in depth absolutely what it, what it sort of means really mm -hmm. um and and i think you know if you've you know, speaking as a vendor, I think if any vendor turned around and said that they are the silver bullets, that you just need our products and you, all your security worries were, were over, mm -hmm. um, I, certainly I'd be really hesitant to kind of sort of look into it because, you know, cybersecurity is a massive domain. Uh, networks, sort of SaaS, cloud, IoT, OT, these are all really complex things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got to take a multi-layered approach to defending that. Zero trust is brilliant. Absolutely, don't get me wrong, but it shouldn't be the only other, the only thing in the environment that that you're using as security. Yeah, there you go. Interesting. So, I'm interested then in in kind of learning what it means to be the, the head of threat analysis at, at Darktree. So, what does your typical day to day look like, or is there a typical day to day? When I get sort of asked, kind of, what is my job? Um, I suppose there's there's a few different ways I answer it, but I think, but I certainly I wear a few different hats. Um, kind of hat number one is is as the job title suggests. So I I head up an analyst team of around a hundred or so cybersecurity analysts who are spread all over the world, from New Zealand to Australia, South Korea, Singapore, through here to the UK and, and the Hague in the Netherlands, um, and then out to to the US, where again we've got more analysts out there. Yeah. And ignoring the cybersecurity element to it, you have a people management challenge straight off the back um there's team leadership that creeps into there there's how do you develop a team of that size how do you recruit and retain staff how do you keep them motivated um, and then you add in the cybersecurity angle and it's like okay well how do you then train them and, de and develop them specifically in cybersecurity and, and so you add all that into it mm. and so i'll be honest i think when i when i joined the thing that I focused on, the, the thing that I spent the first year or so of my time at Darktrace doing was almost turning it into a little bit of the civil service that I just left. Mm. So bring in some of that bureaucracy and structure and process that allows a team of 100 or so to be able to operate and to have a, a way of developing forward rather than just really just keeping up with the status quo. Um, so, yeah, that's if you like one half my role. What are the hats? 
that I wear. And it's just, as I said, it's just people management at the end of the day. And, and, and cybersecurity is an element of it, but it's it's really just about leadership in, in some respects. Um, the other half of my role, um, and again, this is maybe unique to my specific position. I've got the best part of 20 years having done cybersecurity um, in a range of different roles, um, but mostly with a security operations flavor. And that means that I've got a fair few war stories shoved up my sleeve. I've got some battle scars of what worked and what didn't. Um, And that lends itself to kind of being able to talk with my peers across the cybersecurity landscape. So security leaders in in organisations when when they want to talk around what is it that Darktrace can do, um, I can actually paint it in a really much more realistic way. In other words, how does it actually work? How would it work in their organisation? How have I seen it work in other organisations? Mm-hmm. Um, rather than necessarily being about, um, look, here's our here's our marketing messaging and here's the here's the kind of key points of the of the sales rep script, so to speak. And you know, all vendors have it. Don't get me wrong. Um, and then I think from from my perspective, I spend a lot of time talking with customers and, and potential customers who just want a bit more depth. To the standard sales process and and you know with the career with the career and experience i've got i can give that depth um arguably that's a little bit different than than my day job which is i said running that the analyst team but it i don't know it's nice to get out of the office every now and again yeah it's good to have that variety um i think you you're uh you're definitely demonstrating your good communi- communication skills better than what i just did just just then <laughs> um so i think that lends to to being quite good at the sort of customer facing stuff but no so Focusing then on the sort of threat intelligence, I'm noticing at the moment that I mean, sort of previously it seemed like cybersecurity analysts who would do the sort of incident response were also doing elements of threat intelligence just to kind of keep up to date with the threat actors. Um, but I'm noticing more and more quite a lot of companies are doing just a standalone threat intelligence role where you're not doing the sort of incident response, you're actually just doing that collection and analysis um, to keep up to date with, with those threat actors. Um, so do you think there's more of a demand now for, for threat intelligence? And it, it, it comes down to the approach that you take when it comes to how do you defend your network? How do you detect badness in your environment? Um, and there's a few different ways you can do it. And I said, Dark Trace sits all the way off to the left or the right, whichever you want to look at it. Um, so we're, we do sit slightly outside the norms. I, I accept that. Hmm. But the traditional approach, if you like, where you where you write a rule or a signature, is to say, if you see this, alert me because it's bad. And mm. you give it a list of IP addresses or domains or MD5, SHA256 hashes, whatever it might have to be, or an email address or, or something like that. And so you have this never ending list of things that are bad that you're, you're currently looking for. Mm. And the question always comes down to, where do you get that list from? Where does that list of badness come from? Um, one approach is that you just buy it in. Um, and actually, for a lot of organisations that are maybe operating in a bit more of a leaner capacity, um, uh, or maybe it's not particularly well resourced as a, as a function, or well thought about, or well considered, um, is that they'll either they'll, they'll bring it in from an outside source fundamentally, and either as a, as a commercial paid-for product, um, or uh, you know maybe they'll scrape some some open source feeds, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so. If you're doing that, typically it comes as part of a, of a, of a service wrapper. You know, and, and the classic, most obvious one is antivirus. You know, when you buy an antivirus product, you don't just buy it once. You have then these rolling updates where you're constantly downloading the latest rules and signatures. Mm. Um, and the, the question always comes is, you know, is that list the most complete list I can get? And it comes down to the risk 
profile, the risk appetite that that organization has, and that they either accept what is commercially available, um, and they're just buying in these generic one-size-fits-all lists of bad things on the internet, mm-hmm. hoping that it covers the full range of their threats, or they have to put the investment in going looking for the threats that are much more specific to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you see organizations, particularly bigger organizations, that are putting a lot of emphasis around threat intelligence is because they're trying to fill the gaps in the commercially available feeds that exist. They want that assurance that, well, I'm not quite sure if that threat intelligence vendor is covering all of my all of my worry beads. So I'll hire somebody that their job is just to go look at what ransomware actors are up to or uh, what this nation state is up to or, or pick your other sort of favorite sort of threat actor. Yeah. And so effectively, what you're getting there is this this need to chase basically as much knowledge of the threat landscape as possible, that need to have as much detail about the threats that organizations are worried about as they possibly can be, because the the models they have are geared towards the idea of having this list of bad and this list of good of of what exists on the Internet. Um, And there will always be a gap in terms of what you know and and what exists in there is always a question when I talk to threat intel analysts of well do you know everything and of course the answer is no they don't know everything there is always a threat actor they haven't seen before or maybe a threat actor they do know who's operating in a way that they haven't seen before and so that is always the challenge with threat intel is that you are constantly chasing the idea that there is more information out there stuff that you don't know yeah. um, that's great for a really curious inquisitive mind and thinking wrong I spent four, five, six years operating in a very threat intel focused role. So don't get me wrong, I've, I've been there, I kind of I know the kind of the mindset and actually being curious, being inquisitive is an incredible mindset to have across all cybersecurity, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I've got to be honest, you know, yeah, coming from an AI led company that, that very much tries to sort of separate itself from threat intel because i think because we recognize those flaws in threat intel in that you can never know everything Mm. the thing the area that we can get really good visibility over the bit that we can get lots of really good insight into is not the attackers it's the people we're defending you know we can be sat there all night all day observing what every single user is doing getting a really good flavor of what the defenders the good guys are doing yeah. i mean in essence that's what the dark trace ai engine is doing is learning the behaviors of the good guys rather than trying to learn the behavior of every single bad guy that could possibly exist now and in the future in every part of the globe which is essentially what what threat intel is trying to do yeah Quite interesting like you go dark trace is the well, industry leading uh cyber vendor for a reason then um cool so um i mean you you'll know that there's a huge global skills shortage in the cyberspace how do you think um, companies or, or countries can go about kind of filling that that skills gap um, I think there's a few different approaches and and I've been sort of fortunate enough to kind of be involved in a number of initiatives that have tried to sort of fix some of those um, I think the first is it goes back to that that delta that exists from a pure theoretical education based background and mm-hmm. practical hands-on skills and so those are about initiatives that are about giving people that hands-on experience. And whether that's capture the flag activities, whether that is, um, I don't know, uh, a kind of hands-on pen test days or hackathons or kind of you name it, um, actually starting to get people playing around with this sort of this, this technology space, 
is a it really helps those skills kind of become much deeper but it also sparks interest rather than sort of looking at a deck of powerpoint slides going i'm not sure if that's interesting actually playing with a bit of technology actually it's really cool i want to learn more about it and so there was a period of time uh, probably about five plus years ago when i got really heavily involved in an initiative called the Cybersecurity challenge and this was an initiative again it's an it operates at a national level here in the uk there are international kind of counterparts to it um, which is just simply a, a set of online challenges. They lead to face-to-face, -face real uh, sort of in-person challenges, then a, a big grand final. And, and it's all around setting real practical challenges that, that A, help to demonstrate that somebody does actually know what they're talking about. Um, but it also helps people who've not really experienced it a lot to play around and, and just try and maybe sort of, a, sort of experience test a day in some respects. So that's certainly one aspect. Um, Another aspect that I got involved in when I was in the NCSC was kind of an evolution of that, which is recognising two things. One, which is the gender imbalance in cybersecurity is, let's face it, a bit crap. Um, and I think part of that comes down to recognising why that might be. And so targeting the real root of education. And so uh, what it basically boiled down to was this idea that at around about the age 13, 14, 15, you've got uh, secondary school children who are starting to make their GCSE options. And at that point is where all of this gender lack of diversity, for want of a better phrase, starts to creep in. The boys will naturally gravitate towards science, technology, engineering and maths. The girls will naturally gravitate towards humanities and the arts and everything else. Don't get me wrong, that's a massive overgeneralization, but the numbers sort of hold true. Yeah. So the challenge comes to how do you how do you get into the minds of a 13, 14 year old and start to convince them at that age that cybersecurity is cool? Not when they're leaving university, not even when they're applying to university, but right at the point they start to choose their GCSE options mm. and getting them to experience the idea that actually cybersecurity could be a, a cool thing to go down. And so NCSC started the Cyber First Girls competition. And this was a competition just for girls. And OK, that met with some criticism about, well, how is that tackling diversity if you're banning boys? Um, and, and the short answer is, well, all the cybersecurity challenges that I've been in before, um, they were effectively for boys anyway. You know, there, there were no girls taking part. So here we are just kind of having to kind of level the playing field a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I was involved in the um, the first year we ran it. I ended up um, sort of developing and building the scenario for what was then the, the grand final of the inaugural year. We got to host it in, in Lancaster House in London, which if you've never seen it before, is the uh, was basically where they filmed uh, The Crown uh, for, for the Netflix series. So it looks like Buckingham Palace, but clearly it's a slightly cheaper version. Um, and uh, like in these kind of like brilliant surroundings, you had 40, 14 year old girls hunched over laptops trying to break the code that I've just set them for the last hour. Um, and one of the amazing things we came away from that, and it's been running every year since then, um, is the the little stories and, and vignettes we get back from teachers who say, well, when the girls got back from the competition, they wondered why they weren't doing cybersecurity at GCSE and they changed their subjects. We had one school that um, had to basically add on a whole new subject base to their A-level course. They added on computer science for the first time and all because the people that were requesting it were not the standard boy demographic, but the girls that have been through the Cyber First competition. Yeah. So I think I think that's got to be an element as well. And I think the third and the final part that I think I would add to that 
is just kind of really my general kind of mindset and mantra when it comes to recruitment. Um, and it's it's something that I've kind of touched on at various points in this conversation, really, which is like fundamentally, I can teach somebody cybersecurity. I can teach somebody how to code. I can teach somebody how to hack or just log on if whatever we're going back to that argument. Um, like those those are skills that can be taught. What I can't teach somebody is how not to be a pain in the ass, how not to be pick your four letter expletive. Um, like that's that's a mindset and a passion that you can't change. Mm. And so that is something that I tend to recruit for, not the cyber skills that they have or they haven't. And so I think organizations, if they if they want to recruit cybersecurity specialists, I think the phrase I would change is you're not recruiting cybersecurity specialists, you're recruiting cybersecurity specialists of the future. Yeah. And so taking the approach that you are recruiting the person and you give them the skills that they need. Because if you go out to the market demanding a shopping list of skills, you're not going to find it first off, or if you are, it's going to be in short supply. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second aspect is you might get the skills, but you're not going to get the person that goes with it. I would much rather get the person and give them the skills afterwards. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely the right approach. And I think actually, if you go on LinkedIn, you'll see people who are pursuing a career in cybersecurity and haven't haven't managed to kind of crack the code yet. Um, they quite often will post funny memes like that as well. So it's like they, a company will post that they've got an entry level cybersecurity role, but they need to have two years industry experience. I think it doesn't make sense. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree that that, that is the right approach. Um, cool. So let's move on then to sort of the future. Um, so how do you see the world of cybersecurity evolving or, or changing in, in the next 10 years? Um, I think there's a few things. Um, look, I mean, I work for an AI company. I think automation and AI is going to be an increasingly large part of, of all of our roles, all of our lives. Um, and I think, you know, that's been really demonstrated by the release of the chat GPT kind of engine, open AI. You know, I'm sure there's been lots of you know, equally memes on, on social media over the last sort of few weeks or so of, uh, I think, just people playing around with the idea of AI more so than they've ever done before. Yeah. And recognising that actually, OK, yes, there's a few funny things where it doesn't quite work well or they can they can do, make it do things that was never intended to. But actually, it's a lot more sophisticated than people give it credit for or have given it credit for, should I say. So I think I think one aspect is recognising that that AI machine learning or at the very least automation um, will be an increasing part of the role. Um, and, yeah, you know, even the automation part is is something that of, I think value for any organisation. And I don't know, it's, it's a phrase that I've used before that has some it's sometimes had a bit of a mixed response, which is if I can replace you with a Python piece of Python code, why are you here? Um, didn't land very well the first time I said it, but I think it was well well meant when I said it. Um, so anyway, um, so I think there's an element of, of automation that kind of creeps in. Um, as I think I mentioned with with the incident management side of things, um, I think it's around we are we are drifting back to this idea that this isn't a pure thoroughbred, deep, nerdy, techie conversation. You know, you do not need a master's degree or uh, you don't need to understand like how to read assembly code. I, I don't think I, I've not touched it in years. I could probably work out what's going on. But like, you don't need that as a, yeah. as a skill. Um, and that actually there's a lot of there's a lot of areas of cybersecurity 
that probably need more people skills than they do deep, deep technical skills. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a risk that we emphasize the technical skill over the people. And actually, we, we end up suffering. You know, we, we don't have the right processes in place. We don't have the right training in place. We don't have the right uh, structure in, in place, fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when cybersecurity is such a, you know, it, it's not, it's no longer been, it has been for years, a, a question of absolutes. It's about risk management. It's around trying to determine what is the most pragmatic way of reaching a solution. That's not a technical problem. That's a understanding of, of business. That's an understanding of risk. That's an understanding of, of, of human behavior in, in some respects. Um, and those are skills that are probably more valid than ever. Um, and it was really interesting that, you know, so I go back to, back to the, my days in the NCSC, is that for me, you know, I've been doing, I'd like to think I've done some pretty cool stuff in my yeah. career. But towards the end of my time in NCSC, the stuff that interested me the most was all the psychological aspects of cybersecurity. Why do people click links? Like, and that's that's not because people are stupid or, you know, any of the sort of the various memes that you hear. But yeah. there's there's sort of a deep sort of psychological understanding about, well, why do people follow the rules? Why do people not follow the rules? Um, and, and recognizing that, that people are just human at the end of the day and their motivations are probably not the same as my motivations i think we can all be honest with that um and that the reasons they take a certain action will be will be different than, than than others and that understanding of psychology in cybersecurity yeah i think for me became a really really interesting topic that i'll be honest i didn't fully understand and you know i'm certainly no psychologist by by background yeah um but it's really interesting to start to think how do people play a part in cybersecurity? It's no longer a technical problem. Yeah. Well, do you know what? I think you're the first person I've ever spoken to who's wanting to understand the sort of psychology behind why people do things um, in, in the sort of cyberspace. That's really interesting, actually. Good, good way of looking at it. Um, so then I want to kind of ask you a question then that could possibly aid people who are looking to get into cybersecurity now. So what advice would you give to someone who's looking to enter the sort of cybersecurity realm um, as a career? Um, I think there's a few. I think one is is you need to be in a position where you can present yourself as a fully rounded human being. And, and, I, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. Mm. Um, recruiters, interviewers want to see you as a person, how you'll respond in a real world situation. They want to know, yes, they'll want to know the skills and the certificates you've got, but they'll want to know how you'll deliver those. They want to, and you know, ideally with evidence of how you've done it. So you know, increasingly I'm seeing in interviews now that it's not just a, do you know how to code? Yes or no. It's a prove it to me or, or give me evidence that you have. Yeah. And so it's thinking about the the experience that you can get that can demonstrate that you're more than justifications. Uh, and that you're more than just a qualification or a score sheet or something. So that's, mm-hmm. I think, one is is being that rounded person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second aspect is, and, and particularly for those that are early in their career, it's recognising, again, something I said already, cybersecurity is a massive, massive domain. Mm-hmm. And that you may find yourself aiming for one part of the cybersecurity landscape, going, it's interesting, but it's not perfect. And then you then want to try and explore other areas. And I think it's a case of going into maybe your first role in cybersecurity and accepting that, A, that is not the totality of cybersecurity, first off, yeah. um, and B, it might not be the most perfect fit 
for you and that you might want to spend a few years getting to know what role is is right for you. And I mean that in, in the cybersecurity context, but also um, more generally. Um, and, and I mean that because you know it was something that I learned probably a little bit too late in my career is that there are certain roles that I really enjoy mm-hmm. and there are certain roles that are really not a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. And the earlier you can understand those the difference in those roles the better and and to kind of give you give you an example when i i was i was i was presented with an opportunity to take a role on promotion mm-hmm. and in the civil service in the intelligence services um a role on promotion awesome like, i'm going to take that role that sounds you know what is the role in fact doesn't matter it's got a promotion it's fine i'll take i'll take that and there's a risk that you start making some compromises with with what's a good fit and what i've realized is that by that point um and again, this, this is very personal to me. Um, I like working in teams. I like either being part of a team or leading a team. I don't really like being in this sort of solo satellite singleton role. Like they, I don't work well in those sort of settings. Yeah. Um, the second aspect is that it's got to be technical. Like I've got to have a real technical challenge. This can't be just a sort of a, a project management exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third aspect um, is that it's got to have a little bit of operational tempo. Like I can't sit back and do a 10-year research program or I can't, you know, I, when I was at university, I, I did a, a sort of a summer placement for a, a defence and engineering company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were building a thing that was going to take 10 years to build and then it would be in service for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, yeah, that's that's a 30-year project. And like that's a, that's that's someone's career. And that was that was a little bit too slow burn burn for me. And so this this role that I got on promotion, it was a singleton satellite role. It was largely project management um, and it was long term research. Like it, it didn't tick any of my three boxes. I stupidly accepted it because it was on promotion and I regretted it. Now, thankfully, um, you know, there was flexibility in the role, flexibility in the organization that after six nine months ish, um, I was able to kind of move out of that role into one that was a much better fit for me. But if it was I kept the promotion, which, OK, maybe it's a slight saving grace. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my, my advice there is just recognising that, you know, there will be a type of role that will suit and fit your candidates more so than others. And again, the earlier you can learn that, the better. Yeah. And be just be really wary of, of compromising on that because you will find yourself in a role that you just fundamentally do not like. Yeah, I think that's a really good piece of advice. Um, it's interesting that you say that, actually, because it, it got me thinking about the cybersecurity apprenticeships that we've got here in the UK um, and some of the cybersecurity apprentices that I speak to, um, it, it does sound like a really good way of going about getting into the cybersecurity world because a lot of these people are doing like maybe six months as an analyst, six months as an engineer, six months in the infosec team. So they're getting a good bit of, of insight into what it, all those different teams are and how they tie into the, sort of the bigger picture. Um, so yeah, that's that, that's probably a really good way to kind of get into it then as well because you do you do get to see all the different specialisms uh well not all of the different specialisms like you say it's massive but some of the, the biggest sort of specialisms um oh, cool so um we like to finish up the podcast that we do with a quick fire round just so people can kind of get an insight uh in, into the way your mind works um so i'll ask some some questions and you're just going to do the first answer that comes to your head um so when you think of success, of success, who springs to mind? Uh, my family. Oh, I like that answer. Um, what is the nerdiest piece of technology that you own? I have a Raspberry Pi. A Raspberry Pi? What's that? Uh, it's a small form factor like computer that fits 
like about that big. It's a runs a Linux esque operating system. Um, you can pick them up for thirty quid, and they're just like a little plaything. That is brilliant. I'm I'm gonna have to get my little brother that for uh, Christmas. He would love that. Hopefully, he doesn't listen to this before then. I don't think he will. <laughs> uh, perfect. And then, um, so are you Apple or Android? I'm a little bit of an Apple fanboy. Sorry. I'm the same. So uh, I, nothing to apologise there. <laughs> um, and then, what is one thing that you believe in that everyone thinks you're crazy for? It's a really good question. Um, my first instincts is it's that altruism question. And again, mm-hmm. it, it comes back to that I live in a commercial private sector world. And the number one overarching thing for me is, is it the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. People don't necessarily think I'm stupid, but they do think that maybe I should be more interested in the commercial side of things a little bit more than I am. Yeah. Do you know, I had a feeling you might say that. Um, I'm quite <laughs> pleased that I, I guessed that one right. Um, what was your favourite subject at school? Uh, physics, actually. Um, which is probably no great shocker. Um, and just a little bit of kind of context that um, I had a really, really good teacher who I just really, really clicked with. Mm-hmm. My grades weren't necessarily amazing, but it was a relationship with the teacher that I really, really got on well with. Yeah, oh, fair enough. I was, a, I was a big fan of physics as well, to be honest. And uh, I don't know why I didn't take it at A-levels. Definitely something I, I'll regret there. Uh, but no, cool. Well, that is the the end of the the podcast um so thank you very very much for for coming on today it's been a true pleasure um speaking with you before you go though um how can our listeners connect with you i mean if you if your listeners really want to kind of listen to me sort of wax lyrical about i don't know cybersecurity, uh linkedin is a good space to kind of find me twitter is well depending on your views on elon musk is is an all right platform uh to kind of uh, follow some of my ramblings uh but certainly uh, linkedin has become increasingly my my uh platform of choice these days perfect there you go guys please give toby some love and toby thanks so much for your time today it's been a pleasure thank you very much